the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Check out theathletic.com slash Spot Track. Get yourself started. Download that app. Tell them which teams you like. Plethora of content at your fingertips for you to read, watch, and listen to. Speaking of listening, two guests for you today. Scott Allen on the, on the top here with some NFL numbers that I had him run that I think are pretty interesting, actually. Some quarterback numbers. Not the ones you're probably used to seeing, but we've got some, uh, some trending data in terms of spending with that quarterback position. Scott's going to bring those numbers in just a second on the back end of the show. It's been way too long. Paul Hembicates from ESPN, the producer for Get Up, for Greeny, for plenty of shows that you probably listen to and watch on a daily basis. Big baseball guy, big Phillies guy. So as the resident Mets fan of the show, it's a painful conversation to some degree, but it, it was a hell of a year for Major League Baseball. So really good stuff with Paul at the end of the show. And uh, we'll see what kind of uh, impact the Phillies can make in this World Series that gets started in just about 24 hours here. So. Big time baseball show, a little bit of football at the top here, and we'll get rolling in just a second. But first, the NFL trade deadline is six days away. Next Tuesday, November 1st, 4 p.m. Eastern. It's uh, a little earlier than we've had before, but it's, it's the right time for uh, plenty of teams that are at least in the middle of the conversation to do their upgrades. We've seen this be successful in many sports, and the NFL is kind of late to that party, but it is now a thing. It is now a thing that if you believe you have a team that can get to the finish line, making at least one shakeup, be it small, be it big, is worth your time right now. So I expect the Eagles, who got involved today with Robert Quinn, I expect the Rams, who are at least on the fringe of their division. The 49ers have done some damage already. I think the Bills are going to get involved in some capacity. I believe the Packers will try. Now, they may be dead in the water after the Buffalo matchup this Sunday night. But these are the teams to identify, right? Dallas has done some work acquiring Jonathan Hankins from the Raiders. It's just the thing now. It's not so much they have to do it. It's that injuries happen. It's an injury-riddled league. So let's get to a situation where is there going to be a big splash at the wide receiver position? You know, is Brandon Cooks going to leave Houston? Is Chase Claypool going to leave Pittsburgh? There's some teams that know who they are right now. There's some teams that tell themselves, all right, I'm Carolina, we're going backwards. I'm Pittsburgh, we're going to be stuck in water here soon. I'm Houston, everybody's on a one-year contract except for Brandon Cooks. If we can get the right value for him, even though we'd hate to lose him because he's holding our offense up right now, you got to do it. you got to do it. So, you know, who are the other teams to identify here right now? I'm going to look by cap space. Cleveland has $34 million worth of cap space right now. Now, Right, Deshaun Watson's coming back into the fold in four weeks here. There's going to be some roster shakeups. Kareem Hunt is on this trade block. I'm surprised Kareem Hunt didn't get traded before this season. He's going to go. And by the way, I don't think he's the only Brown that goes because that's a team that is stuck in the middle a little bit. Generally, if you look up and you see six other teams ahead of you in your conference, you start to say, what can we do right now to make this team better for next year? I think there are two names, Kareem Hunt and Greedy Williams, that do that for Cleveland. I don't think they're buying. Now, they could, because they have this cap room right now that certainly could roll over, they could be sellers and buyers right now. And think about a full 2023 with Deshaun Watson, with Nick Chubb, you know, with Amari Cooper, et cetera, et cetera. 
the Ninjoku injury to me even furthers that point because he was holding up that offense quite a bit outside of Amari Cooper. So the Bears have already started to sell. They've got 27 and change now. That's going to get depleted a little bit once we determine the Robert Quinn retained salary. But that's a team right now that could do some damage. And the Raiders have 11 million of cap space. They've already moved on from Hankins, as I mentioned. There's some names on that roster. The local people think Darren Waller is not long for that roster, despite he just got a brand new contract extension with Drew Rosenhaus. I think that's an off-season move at best. But I think Josh Jacobs has a real chance to move off this roster, especially if the Raiders understand what's happening right now around them. Now, Chargers are banged up. Chargers are going to slide. There's no question about that. So the Raiders could potentially get into some serious wildcard contention mode right now. But if they're not going to pay Josh Jacobs and they don't want to franchise tag him, which they should, nine and a half million, right? But if there's a real chance that they just let him walk instead of that compensatory draft pick next year, you got to start thinking about getting multiple draft picks for him right now. So I do think there'll be a few running backs considered here. I do think there'll be a few wide receivers considered here. What happens with Mike Kosicki in Miami, who has at least started to come to the forefront of that, of that offense a little bit now that two is returned. But that's a franchise tag expiring. Not a double tag candidate, in my opinion. Are you just going to let him walk? I don't know. Is there value for that player out there right now? None of the major, major teams have serious tight end injuries yet. I'm saying yet because there's time, right? This weekend could be a big, big weekend for some of those fringe players. But if we're talking about cap space, your top five are Browns, Bears, Raiders, Eagles, Panthers. Four teams, I think, going backwards, and the Eagles at the top of the entire league right now. Atlanta's six. They're going to continue to slide in. Is there a, a player or two on that roster that could fall off? Possibly. And then we got some buyers, right? Dallas can buy. Green Bay can buy. Miami should buy. The Eagles may not be done buying. Howie Roseman loves to make moves, especially when there's deadlines in front of him. So I think there's some serious conversations to be had there. Least amount of cap space, Tennessee, Seattle, Minnesota, Buffalo, New England. There's always money to be found, right? If Buffalo really wants to do something, A, they can shed a salary back to get a player in and or restructure somebody to get something done for right now. Seattle, I'd give them the same conversation. Minnesota, probably in that same conversation too. They're going to run away with this division if the Packers can't figure this out. So those are three teams that have very little cap space, leading divisions that probably should look to at least fill a hole right now with the trade deadline, and we'll have to do some cap gymnastics to make that happen. All right, let's talk some quarterbacks with Scott. All right, Scott, I threw a tweet out that kind of piqued your interest and got you going down the research rabbit hole a little bit. It was about the Colts when they made their surprising move to bench Matt Ryan, which got me down the rabbit hole of why is this happening? And of course, the answer was money, right? I mean, it's about guaranteed contracts in 2023 and injury guarantees and a player that's just not working out. And rather than push this thing out and see what you can do for another 10 weeks. It's about cutting bait, seeing if your sixth round draft pick can supplant Matt Ryan and uh, preserving some guaranteed money for next year as well. You took that and ran with it. Cause what I did is I said, all right, well, this is now like the 77th quarterback that the Colts have tried in the last few years. That's got to add up to a bunch of money. And I figured it was about 145, 146 million. When I did this thing manually, you actually ran the numbers pretty much to the T the Colts are high in this list, but Scott, they are not at the top of this list. If we're talking about quarterback cash, and I'm talking everything, right? We're talking about players that stayed, players that are gone, dead cash, active cash, injured cash, the works. Run me down the top five, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so Green Bay, $181 million plus 
Minnesota second, 165. San Francisco, 152, almost 153 million. Los Angeles Rams, 150 and a half million. And then Indianapolis is number five at 146 million. Okay, so not super surprising, right? Veteran quarterbacks all over that list. And, and when you're talking Indy, we're talking four veteran quarterbacks, right? It's, it's Andrew Luck and his tail off, his retirement, his parting gift roster bonus. Philip Rivers, Matt Ryan, Carson Wentz. There's Nick Foles in there. There's a whole bunch of guys. But they still stand out like a sore thumb here because it's not like they've got one fixed guy that they've either paid once or twice, right? Like there's, there's two Aaron Rodgers contracts in here. There's two Kirk Cousins contracts in here. There's a Jared Goff and a Matt Stafford contract in here for the Rams. And then subsequently, you've got Garoppolo and the big bonus year for Trey Lance in his first rookie season. So I at least get all that. Indy being fifth is something. And I guess my premonition was correct, right? In, in going down this rabbit hole. Let's talk about the sixth team because it brings a whole new, a whole new element to it. How closely tied when you, when you see the numbers here and then you actually think about the process over the past five years, how closely tied are the Colts and the Washington football team? It, it's it's pretty close, it's, isn't it's it? It's crazy, I mean, right? I mean, it, they're sharing very quarterbacks much. now. <laughs> they're very, trading each other quarterbacks. Very much for teams that are, you know, revolving doors of quarterbacks when yep. sort of underperforming. You, the Colts, you, you expect them. They have this great defense, and they're like one person away, and they try and try, and it doesn't seem to work. Washington, they've had a revolving door of but it's very similar. They, they loaded it up is. on defensive draft picks and a couple of free agent splashes, right? Landon Collins, William Jackson. They, they did. Uh, I, I never put this t- disconnection together until this exact moment, Scott. But it's very similar, right? The Alex Smith free agent contract was very similar to the Philip Rivers move. Very similar to the Matt Ryan move, right? I mean, you can understand. And I guess the Carson Wentz connection now is just the proof that these two organizations are in the same window and failing together successfully right there. This is the wrong decision a couple of years in a row for both of these teams. It's crazy. It is, which is why I went down this rabbit hole myself. When I saw that, I'm like, well, how does the 145, 146 million actually compare to the rest of the league? Because, you know, yeah, that if that ended up being really far down the list of all the teams, then okay, you get it. But the fact that they're, fifth out of the rest of the, the league and right. they don't have much to show for it. Similar to Washington right now, they have not much so, to show. So that's kind of the conversation, right? Cause you see green Bay, 181 million. And all you have to do is say, fine, it's Aaron Rodgers. You're just going to pay him wherever you need to keep him. That's what they've done. So you just kind of scratch that one off. Minnesota's interesting in that regard though, right? They've, because they don't have that signature win. I mean, they've got what round one, round two, maybe at most in that five year span. Right, that crazy Saints game, the the Kirk Cousins money we've talked about it quite a bit. It's probably worth talking about again here. It's just it's just piled and piled and piled and piled up since. By the way, I think he's part of the Washington number as well back in 2018. So he he fits in two of these top sixes. Um, but Minnesota ha- doesn't have much to show for 165 million. San Francisco has a Super Bowl appearance and an NFC Championship appearance. The Rams obviously have their Super Bowl. So if we're talking top 10, you know, Minnesota is yuck, but at least competitive. 
Indy's yuck. Washington's super yuck. Tampa Bay's fine. We know what the happened there. Is Dallas a yuck? Dallas being eighth think, in this list is kind of yucky. Yeah, I, I think some people would say it is for the lack of <laughs> postseason success, if you want to call it that. I mean, we want to talk ourselves into them being better than they are every year, but they're not. They're, they're just flat out not. And they're, you know, they're off to a good start this year, but it's early. There's a lot of games left here for them to flatten out a little bit. Um, 2018 does not include any Tony Romo money, by the way. So it's all No, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I pulled up the list of all the cash of of the uh, quickly here. Dallas, you know, it's yeah. it, it's very heavy on Dak. You got a little bit of Andy Dalton in there, some Cooper Rush. And what's fascinating and, is Dak took the Cousins route with the franchise tag there for a second, right? So it, it, it's almost as if the teams that wait to pay end up paying more in the long run, right? Green Bay got down to the, an expiring contract with Rodgers. Kirk Cousins has had to read this thing a couple times because of short contracts. You know, Stafford was a redo. It's it's funny how that's working out, right? Are we going to see Baltimore jump up this list eventually because they've waited so long on Lamar Jackson? Are they going to have to then overpay now and then maybe pay him again at some point if that works out? By the way, we can we can flip to that if you want. Baltimore's dead last. That they're the lowest spending team on quarterbacks over the past five years in football by a huge margin, by thirteen million dollars. That's wild, Scott. This is a contending team. Yeah, it absolutely is. Lamar Jackson covers uh, thirty-two point seven million of that, and then Joe Flacco's twelve, and then yeah. you've got you know Robert Griffin and uh, Huntley and sure, some others. Right. It's wild, and they're going obviously going to jump up this list when they drop what seventy-five million in ne- next year on Lamar in year one with that signing bonus and whatever. So, well, and, and and I was going to say when you look at the bottom half year. Yeah. All of these teams, not all, most of the teams at the bottom here are on the precipice of having to pay their rookie. So Lamar Jackson with Baltimore, Cincinnati with Joe Burrow, you know, Cincinnati's fourth from the bottom. The Chargers, they're fifth from the bottom. You got Herbert there. The the Giants could have been Daniel Jones, could still be Daniel Jones if he continues to succeed. There's got to be some Eli there, right? Quite a bit. Yeah, Eli's probably still in there a bit. Yeah. Um, if I run that, Eli ends up covering, yeah, uh, 33 million yeah, of that. half of that, okay. Yeah, so I guess the, it, it just bears the question, right? And it's totally a franchise decision. It's a front office decision that the owner has to sit down and kind of coagulate with them. Do you want to be Indian Washington where you're trying to do this on the fly? And by the way, doing it on the fly means throwing literally hundreds of millions of dollars at this. Or are you better off being Houston? Are you better off being Cincinnati, who went all the way down, got locked into a Joe Burrow situation, right? Daniel Jones for the Giants. The Bears have been trying this for forever. The Jets with Wilson, et cetera, et cetera. Every team's going to think about this differently. But when you look at the difference between numbers here, and, you know, Indian Washington are, are sort of the scapegoats here because it's $145 million they're averaged over five years versus... Let's just say Houston, right? Maybe that's a bad example. Let's say the Chargers, who have, have continually built a, a really nice roster, drafted well defensively. Every year they make some kind of splash free agent move. They, they aren't exactly sitting on their hands, the Chargers, to the point of where really smart people pick this team to win the division almost every year out of this five years. You know, They haven't really gone away in our minds, but they're, fifth, you know, they're sixth lowest on this list, fifth lowest on this list. 
because of the Herbert situation, because they got rid of Phillip Rivers when they did. Would you rather be the Chargers or the Colts right now? Mm. Would you rather be the Chargers or the Vikings right now? Is that a better question? I think I'd... Ah, that's a great question. Right? I guess I think I, because I think I'd a, go with it's ninety million dollars different. <laughs> it is the the Chargers always seem to trip over themselves. Whether yeah. you know, it, you know it, they 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 always have some issues. So I think I'd rather go with Minnesota than yeah. have the track record of the Chargers. Of you know, the Chargers remind me of uh, like the Denver Nuggets in the NBA, where the, the hopes are high and they always seem to not get very far, you know, right. in deep into the playoffs, even though everyone thinks they should Minnesota. I think their roster is, you know, put together pretty well, similar to the chargers, but again, whatever it is coaching or whatever, the chargers just seem to you know, trip out over their own feet. So I'd go with Minnesota most likely. In so that they, they've obviously paid, I mean, on average cousins has made 30, $33 million a year for five years. That's just how this works with the double franchise tag the first guaranteed contract and then the extension to put him into where he is now with one more year left on that through 2023. It's, it's kind of just holding the fort down with a, with an above average quarterback. He hasn't made, you know, I think at one point in time, he was the highest average paid quarterback in football, but that quickly went away and now he's not even close. And I I will say this out loud because I think I agree with you. I, I think I would rather be one of the teams and it's obviously not our money, so we can say this easily. I think I'd rather be one of the teams that has been pot committed versus, and I'm not saying having Justin Herbert is a problem. What I'm saying is, if you're all the way down at the bottom right now and you still don't have your guy, shouldn't you at least attempt the Indianapolis or Washington situation once, or Minnesota for that matter, not that there's free agents like that all the time, but shouldn't you at least go that route once just to see if you can catch lightning in a bottle? Because it, it does save you from releasing eight players that you love or not, not extending three players that you really want to keep, that you did a really good job drafting. That's the, that's the price to pay when you decide to Cincinnati this thing and go all the way down for Joe Burrow or Justin Fields this thing or Zach Wilson this thing. The price to pay is all that work that's been done on drafting the proper off-ball linebacker and drafting the shutdown corner and drafting the edge rusher who now it makes no sense to guarantee $60 million to those players because you don't have the one piece that matters the most. So I, I, I respect the hell out of what's happening here, even though Indian Washington kind of look like fool's gold right now. Again, it's not our money. And these are billion-dollar corporations, Right. Spend the money on the position that matters the most. And if you, if, if you swing and miss, like the Colts have for five straight years, at least you can go down saying, hey, man, we tried this thing every way possible except for losing every game to get down to number one. Right. It didn't work. Now we're going to do that again. We're going to go back to the Andrew Luck route, and we're going to make that, that, that try to happen for us probably next year in 2023, right? But I, I think I just respect the zag. You know, and it and it costs a hell of a lot to do it, but I respect it. Now looking at these numbers here, yeah, because if if the Matt Ryan situation or even Carson Wentz situation worked for a season, we'd be having a completely different conversation. Or yeah. if Matt Ryan right now was lighting it up and they were, you know, winning ball games and not having the situation that they're having, we'd be 
talking about how brilliant of a move totally. the Matt Ryan situation is. But right now, because not unlike the Stafford situation or the I mean, the Brady's a little bit there because he's Brady. But, you know, this, there was risk in the L.A. getting bringing Stafford over. There's a ton of risk in that. You know what I mean? Yep. We're, especially after the Jared Goff situation didn't exactly go as planned, even though, you know, I think he did a better job than he gets credit for in Los Angeles. But yeah, the, the, that's a move that worked. And we praised the hell out of it. Obviously, it worked to the highest nth degree. But yeah, th- there's going to be a lot of, of negativity thrown around Indy right now. But I think there's, again, it's not our money, you know? So the fact that they're fifth on this list, that's their problem. They've dealt with it. And obviously, Scott, it doesn't matter too much to them either because Matt Ryan's sitting on the bench right now making $25 million this year and 12 more next year. So if, if they don't care about the money in that regard, then we shouldn't either. And we should always be rooting for this, this maximum gas pedal down, right? Yeah, we, we should. But I think teams are going to probably pump the brakes a little bit because the track record of trading for these quarterbacks has yeah. not worked out. I mean, Wentz, the Matt Ryan, the, the Baker Mayfield situation, yeah. you know, it, you know, uh, the Wilson situation as of late, you know, so trading for these quarterbacks has not really worked out. So um, I wonder if teams are now more hesitant and would rather just it's a fair point. Go, to, go to the bottom and, and get that rookie. And if you have to be in the bottom for three straight years and you do a quarterback three straight years until you get the right one, then maybe they're fine with that because the cost of signing those rookies is going to be much less than having to deal with $28, $35 million for trading for a... So here's the ultimate zag. We'll finish with this, all right? Here's the ultimate zag that we haven't seen happen yet. And I'm starting to really hear this. Not so much like a proclamation. You know, Stephen A. Smith isn't getting in front of a microphone and saying, this is the next big thing. But I'm starting to hear this from some of the guys we listen to in podcasts and things like that. Scott, it's getting dropped kind of in between the lines, little nuggets. What we haven't seen is the team that just goes, all right, I'm running this guy for six years. We're going to pay him what we pay him, whatever the going rate, the rookie wage scale, plus the fifth, plus the franchise tag, maybe a second, maybe, maybe it's seven years. And then we're just going back to the well. It just doesn't matter. Even if, even if he looks, smells, tastes like another, another five, six years worth of franchise quarterback, I'm not going $150 million fully guaranteed at signing. I'm just not doing it. I'm going mm-hmm. back to the rookie wage scale, which, what, at that point in time will be 50 for the number one pick. So 25 for a 15th, number 15th pick. And I'm saving myself $125 million fully guaranteed by starting over. And yes, there's a ton of risk in it. But what if that's Lamar? What if Baltimore wants to stay at the bottom of this list? Uh, right. Yeah, you can, pay, you can pay so many other players. And uh, it, yeah. if... If the college kids continue to get better every year, Bingo. then in six years, you may have a much better quarterback than you currently have down the road. So you're right. So Because I, here's the thing, Scott. Let's say, let's say they run Lamar fifth-year option this year, first tag next year, second tag next year. Now, he may hold out and you know, blow this whole thing up, but let's just say it gets through 2025, double franchise tag, Absolutely no more point of return, right? You're telling me there's not going to be a team who's in a different scenario than the Baltimore Ravens at that point in time that won't acquire Lamar Jackson at 30, 29 years old, right? And say, all right, well, well, Baltimore's doing that thing, but we're not doing that thing. We're ready for, you know, we're the Colts. We're the Washington, you know, commanders. We are defense ready. 
We are offensive weapon ready. We just got to upgrade that one position. And rather than try to gut this thing and start over, let's just trade three firsts for Lamar Jackson right now. So not only is Baltimore getting out of the money, they're getting huge return on Lamar, probably the same return they can get right now for him, right? After this season, before that first franchise tag, because he's Lamar, because he's not 30, because he's a quarterback that can play in this league. So all they have to do then is take that draft, those, that draft asset, that, you know, the capital they get back for Lamar, and figure out how to turn it into the right quarterback in the draft. It's way easier said than done. I understand this. But somebody's going to do this. You know, this is not, it, within the next couple of years, in my opinion, maybe it's five years, but it's in this next span of time. Some team's going to do this. They're going to say no to that guaranteed money on the second contract, and they're going to attempt this. So to me, I look at these numbers, and that's what I'm looking for. You know, I don't know that the, that, that quarterback exists right now. Maybe Lamar's not the guy. I don't think Burrow's that guy. I don't think Jalen Hurts is that guy. But I got to tell you, Scott, those are three franchises that I wouldn't put this idea past. <laughs> No, you're right. And I, I pulled up the last Super Bowl, the last few Super Bowls here in, in reverse order. You had Joe Burrow in a Super Bowl rookie contract, right. Mahomes two years in a row. Uh, I think both of those were on his rookie, if not one and just, one. Just yeah, one, one. one and one. Rams before that with Jared Goff, yep. Philadelphia with Carson Wentz injured, but Nick Poles in there, but we'll call it Wentz because he was in there for most of the season. Uh, then it was. Yeah. Um, Atlanta. Yeah, it's not a great track record, but it's starting to become at least a possibility. You know, and the Bengals kind of fortified that. The Bengals went from zero to 100 last year. Well, 99, right? They didn't get to the finish line. But yeah, we're starting to see more and more of that. And I think you're right that the level of play in the college game is ramping up. We've got a draft that might have five first round quarterbacks in a couple of months here. If that trend continues, and it's the wide receiver conversation, right? Why am I paying Tyreek Hill 30 when I can go back to the draft and number 27 overall could be a guy that can run that fast and catch as many balls as Tyreek? Are we going to get to that point with the quarterback position? Probably not as deep, but even if it's close, even if there's three to four guys every year because the college system is just continuing to pump these things out, you're going to see teams really consider it, right? Yeah, I would think so. And if uh, if they feel that they have so many players on their roster, they may feel, mm-hmm. all right, I, I'll, I'm willing to give up draft compensation to move up to get said player every six years because it's team controlled, cost controlled, and I can have whoever I want around this kid because I know it's going to work out, then you know that, that may be the wave of the future. And, and oh, by the teams. way, and, and there's a little NBA here to talk about, right? At some point in time, the other positions in this league are going to get really pissed off, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, right. That's what happened in the NBA six, seven years ago, where you had such, a, it was like a 3%, right? Where, where you had guys making at that point, 30, 35 million. And the rest of the league was in the eights and the nines and the sevens. And they had to literally come to a, you know, a, a, an agreement to say, we got to fix this thing right now. So that everybody kind of, there's a trickle down effect, blah, blah, blah. We're getting to that situation with the quarterbacks who are at 50.2 million, you know, headed towards 55, maybe even 60 with a cap that's approaching 250 in a few years here. That's going to continue to expand. Running backs are going down. Defensive tackles are going down. Safeties are flatlining here, even though a couple of guys bumped up this year. Tight ends have completely flatlined. Offensive line is trickling, you know, up nicely a little bit here. For the most part, though, Scott, 
it's a very slow uptick for these other positions and some positions are going backwards still. So we start having this conversation and somebody like the Ravens or the Eagles decides we're going seven years and going back to the rookie wage scale. You can't help but not pay other positions then. Right. Right. But the 49ers can tolerate Christian McCaffrey at 12 million because Trey Lance is, is what 18 or whatever the hell he is. Right. I mean, it's, it's nothing to them. They can, there is a deferral process. If the quarterback is minus 60% of what a veteran quarterback pay is, well, that's 60% we can allocate now to 53 other players in the roster. So to me, the NFLPA is going to be for something like this, even though nobody likes to hear guys not getting paid what they're due. I also just think it's not going to be a 32-team situation, like I kind of referenced there. You're going to have teams that are in the right window to not pay, you're going to have teams that are going to be in the right window to acquire quarterbacks for multiple draft picks, right? We're in a buy window. We're not in a draft window. It's just a, that's just how this league operates. Everybody's kind of, you know, in their own status, in their own stage of the game. And uh, I just wonder who's going to be the first to take that leap. That's all. It's a conversation I've been wanting to have quite a bit here. And seeing the Ravens at the bottom of this list, and quite frankly, the Chargers and the, and the Bengals and the Eagles down there too, it's, I'm not rooting for it. But I think it'd be good for everybody, right? That for for somebody to try this at least. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and there's some newer GMs that are willing to take a risk, especially if they have an ownership that is allowing them that flexibility. S- similar to Oklahoma City Thunder with Sam Presti, he's got all the length of you know leash that he can acquiring all the draft picks in the world. So in the NFL, if there's an ownership that says do what you need to, I want you to be creative and keep you know, keep us winning, but allow you to pay where you need to. Maybe, maybe we'll see that sooner than later. Good stuff, man. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. It's been too long, but it's the perfect time to have him back. Hembo, your Phillies are in the world series, man. Just, uh, just tell me how it feels. Cause I'm a pretty pissed off Mets fan. Over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, it's honestly kind of surreal. Like the best things in life, at least from my experience, are unexpected. And I'd be lying through my teeth if I were to say that I expected any of this. I mean, the Phillies fired their manager after 51 games. The Phillies were swept by the Cubs at Wrigley like one month ago. The Phillies only got in the playoffs because they expanded them. And the Phillies were an underdog in each of the three series that they played. And to date, they've not even really been tested. Um. And so, look, I honestly am as surprised as most of you are. Like, I watched this team play all season long, as you'd expect. Sometimes when you're too close to it, especially when you're from Philadelphia, you become awfully jaded and pessimistic and negative. (laughs) But I have to say, like, I I was dead wrong about Dave Dombrowski. I was dead wrong about his building plan. And even if you want to ascribe what the Phillies are enjoying to good luck, um, you know, you've created your own good fortune by, by the way that they built this thing. And sort of in a non-traditional way, it's sort of not the way that I would do a team building exercise if I were in charge, but that's why I'm here and, and he's there. Okay. So you buried the lead on my next question then, because I was going to ask you flat out. I don't think we talked before the season. Was this a team that you loved? I mean, I mean, were you, were you gravitating toward these kind of, you know, doom or die big time bats and, and blazing arms on the mound, but not much depth, right? This was kind of a really top heavy roster which is what Dombrowski's done in Boston. And he, and he kind of brought that here. I, I'm guessing by what you said there, that this wasn't your favorite lineup to start the year. Um, that's exactly right. Uh, what you said, it was my belief that the Phillies spent an awful lot of money 
on Schwarber and Castellanos to get a little better. And the reason I felt that way was because last season the Phillies were so bad defensively that sometimes I had to turn off games because it was angering me so. And they wound up signing two DHs to play in the corner outfield when I knew Bryce Harper's elbow was torn. And that was going to be a major problem for us. But I think what we learned this year, I think the Yankees are also demonstrative of this or illustrative of this, is that defense is sort of a novelty. Like it's sort of a boutique skill in baseball. It isn't to say that it is entirely unimportant. It is to say that at a, at a place in the game's history in which the batted ball is just less common than it used to be, I'm not so sure that defense matters all that much. And so that isn't to say that you should necessarily punt on it, but it is to say that the value that you can generate from having a bunch of thumpers in your lineup is the reason why the Phillies are in the World Series and the Yankees, who prioritize defense in the offseason, are not. Do we have a sports team that re- that this Phillies team reminds you of? It doesn't have to be a baseball situation. I mean, to, to, to some degree, the, the Boston Celtics sort of felt like this last year, right? They were just god-awful at the turn. You know, you know, did this coach know what he was doing? There was a coaching change here. And then down the stretch, it just turned into one of the best stories in the entire sport. Is it, is it that? Is it the New York Giants Super Bowl run? What, what does this feel like to you? It's um, obviously really improbable. I mean, the closest thing that it does remind me of is, is probably those Giants teams because, like, they were teams that, that won three games as an underdog to get to the Super Bowl. The 2012 Ravens are another example of a team like that um it's very uncommon that you'll see a team win three consecutive series as an underdog now we just saw the nationals win the world series in 2019 they obviously did so sort of against all odds although they were favored over the cardinals in the championship series that season but it strikes me as something that's unique to baseball um the fact that through 50 games (laughs) the phillies stunk the 2019 nationals stunk and they find themselves here almost at the very top of the mountain. It's obviously such an incredibly long season and it challenges my priors, which is the manager in baseball doesn't matter. But (laughs) if you listen to talk shows in New York right now, they don't think that. And if you just observe the difference between Joe Girardi's Phillies and Rob Thompson's Phillies, then I don't think anyone would take me seriously. So the the 2022 Phillies have defied all of my priors. Like that's, that's the reason why it took me so long to get on board with this team because they were literally like against or opposite everything that I sort of have learned over the course of my life as a researcher. And that isn't to say that all those things are wrong. It is to say that there are just exceptions to rules and I need to be willing to accept that. In this case, it obviously worked out to my advantage. But this is the end of the road, right? Uh, this is the end of the road. Uh, this is definitely, the, what the Phillies did this year is, is not a strategy. It's just a stroke of good fortune. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that they definitely created some of that for themselves. Like the, the Bryce Harper contract, Obviously, a massive 13-year, $330 million deal that shook baseball to its core at a time when the Phillies were just not good at all wound up serving as something of a force multiplier. It's, I think, something of a blind spot for me and maybe for other people that do analytics. Like, I, you know, you look at a player, you say they're a three-war player, they're a seven-war player, et cetera, right? Yeah. But obviously, the, the orbit around Bryce Harper is a whole different thing than having a bunch of guys that provide value in that column whereas Bryce Harper's mere presence attracted Kyle Schwarber to Philadelphia attracted Nick Castellanos to Philadelphia and I suppose qualitatively the leadership that he demonstrated and his decision not to get Tommy John surgery during the season sort of inspired this team like those are all things that matter and as like as a general manager if you are sort of you know game planning out the next decade of your franchise 
those are things that are to be taken seriously. It's not just a matter of, well, how much value is this player going to provide in relation to how much money we're paying them, although that is the primary thing. But like you've seen, we've seen LeBron James go places and become forced multipliers right away because people want to play with him, right? Fans want to go see him play. Like there is a there is a sort of forced multiplier effect. In my opinion, it's not at all coincidental that the Nationals became perennial contenders once Harper debuted and got great. Just like it's no coincidence that the Phillies have finally turned this thing around as Bryce Harper is, is sort of fully immersed into his prime and they've done just enough to fill out that team around him. And you mentioned the contract, and the contract is its own element to that multiplier, right? Because it's not going away, right? And they can trade it away. They can try to trade it away, but it's there. It, it exists every single year, which makes them believe that they have to push every single year. It, I think the best example of that was Jose Ramirez this year with Cleveland, mm. right? I think an extension that nobody thought he was going to agree to. And then he did kind of at the final hour. And all of a sudden, this Guardians team went from maybe a middle of the pack, maybe even a lower divisional, you know, contender to we're going, you know, we're bringing every prospect we have up to see if this thing's going to work. And, and it did to a certain degree. So money can really talk even in the moment. And I do think that five years into this Bryce Harper contract, you're right. The, the gas pedal has been down. It's probably one of the reasons Dombrowski picked this team, by the way, you know, is that they, he had this solid foundation and this contract here. He didn't have to go and find that one cornerstone player. And, uh, but you're right. Hit, Harper's injury, everything about this thing is just a fairy tale right now. And, uh, you know, the, the Astros may be a roadblock, but I think you're, you've got already satisfied at this point, right? The Phillies are a house money team. That's right. And those are the most dangerous teams. Like, the, the, the Astros right now are a steamroller. But let's not pretend like this team didn't choke last year. Let's yeah. not pretend like this team didn't choke three years ago. Like, the Astros are a great punch-you-in-the-face team. They're not such a great get-punched-in-the-face team. And it's not like Dusty Baker's managerial postseason career is exactly beyond reproach. And so I totally agree with your sense. If the Phillies were swept out of this series with a run differential of minus 40, I could still um, sleep easy. <laughs> but I sure as heck am not counting on it because if, I, if you had dropped in a, an alien from outer space and all they had ever watched was playoff baseball, they would say this should be a coin flip series. Uh, and the fact that we're calling the, you know, this the 106-win Astros versus the 87-win Phillies, while accurate, obviously doesn't even begin to tell the story. It is a story storybook situation, though. And the Nationals had that in 2019. They were the underdogs. They were the team that shouldn't have been there in the first place, and they got the job done. There's a lot of similarities there. That's a really good comparison by you. Uh, to, to me, it should be a coin flip. And by the way, the other element that I'll, that I'll finish on before we move on to other baseball stuff, Kyle Schrober's a way better baseball player than I thought. And I've seen him now on three different teams. Maybe, you know, he, he's not just to go up there and swing for the fences guy. He knows what the hell he's doing. And when these rules change next year, He's going to bat like, like 280, like 290 every single week. It's, it's, gonna, it's really going to affect him. So good for you. Really good get by you guys. And I'm happy for you, even though I, I probably shouldn't be at this point. Aaron Judge, man, it's kind of your neck of the woods right now. I'm sure you've been just knee deep in Aaron Judge content with the, with the work you do for the past, what, year and a half now? Yep. Where are mm-hmm. we with this? You know, what is the sense? What is the pulse down where you are right now in that New York area? versus what everybody else is kind of saying from their soapbox here. Yeah, right now we're in the eye of the hurricane. The way that the season ended here for the Yankees, honestly, was an absolute humiliation for the proudest fan base in the sport. Um, We can make fun all we want of Yankees fans and their high demands and their temperament and all the things. But the truth of the matter is Aaron Judge just had an historic regular season. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet uh, his team had a 0% chance to beat the Astros in the ALCS. I mean, the Yankees have lost considerable ground over the last five years somehow, while the Astros have gained 
considerable ground over the last five years somehow. And I suppose there's plenty of blame to go around. And if you talk to Brian Cashman and you guys were uh, sitting down with a scotch in your hand, what he tell you is, look, we build the best possible uh, teams we can every single year. We approach 100 wins every single year. Yep. We have a formula that works. Playoff results are fluky. But try telling that to someone who owns a bodega in Brooklyn or one of the Fide Eye Bros or you know, you know, fill, fill, fill in your blank, uh, your Yankee fan. Like that is that is not an explanation that they are interested in hearing. And there is now enough data that say that perhaps the Yankees' building plan is a really, really, really great way to be good, but a really, really bad way to be great. And that's the difference between the Yankees and the Astros. The Yankees have become very formulaic in their team building approach, and ultimately. I think that has what has been sort of what has um, sort of held them back a little bit here. When you can only win one way, when you can only win with an abundance of home runs, and when you have to so heavily rely on starting pitching to get you places, you're not going to be able to win in the postseason. What made the Astros so great was their multiplicity, the fact that there are many ways by which they could beat you. In the Yankees' case, if Aaron Judge wasn't literally Babe Ruth, they weren't going to win the World Series, and to expect any one man to do that was obviously unreasonable. And, oh, by the way, he might be gone. And so, like, the one thing that you had going for you, I mean, the glue that kept that team season together, the reason I didn't pick them to make the playoff was because I thought they had a really average lineup. Well, as it turns out, that was true. It just so happens that they were saved by, yeah. I don't know, one of the five or ten greatest offensive seasons the game has ever known. So is it actually better for that team right now to kind of reset on the fly? Or do you think running this thing back with Aaron Judge makes way too much sense, even if it's an overpay? Okay, so um, you, you could ask that question to a, uh, a public relations specialist, or you could ask that question to a math guy, and they would give you totally different answers. I'm more of a math guy. My personal opinion is that paying Aaron Judge $40 million a year for every year in his 30s is a catastrophically bad decision for the New York Yankees. And honestly, if some team like, say, the San Francisco Giants is willing to write him a $400 million check over the next 10 years, I think the Yankees should uh, breathe a sigh of relief because that is not a contract that they want to be under. Obviously, the Stanton deal is a big one. The Cole deal is a big one. And the Yankees need way more than just Aaron Judge to become successful. What the Yankees need to do is use that, I don't know, $40 million per year and pour it into several different places in your roster to improve considerably. Like the lack of the lack of depth on that roster right now, especially in relation to Houston, which is the team they're going for, is staggering. And look, there's no chance that Aaron Judge can possibly duplicate what he just did. You're paying 200 cents on the dollar for a player who's not willing to give you a hometown discount, who has given no indication that he has any interest in staying in New York in all candor. So I actually think that the Yankees might well wind, uh, wind up by sort of making out like a bandit here, kind of like how St. Louis did once Albert Pujols left. Of course, the difference is that St. Louis was able to stay good by improving their roster elsewhere, and that remains to be seen if they can do it. I, I wouldn't be that confident in Brian Cashman based upon what he's done recently. The Josh Donaldson, Isaiah Kiner, Falefa, Trey, like that whole thing last year is really a thorn in the uh, fan side because those guys just can't hit at all. Yeah. You're not going to win the American League pennant if you can't hit at all. There's way, way too many holes in that lineup. They need to sort of restock that thing to the gill. You know, you mentioned the the kind of facade 100 win teams, right? The Yankees have been there for a while. Now the Rays are a 90 win team every year, but nobody really thinks they're going to win the World Series, even though they got pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. And even the Dodgers, you know, four out of the past five years here have been just absolute monsters for 165 games. And then something trips them up. It's two different seasons. We've, we've heard this a lot. We're seeing this in the NFL too, man, right? I mean, 
how many times do we see a team go six and one or eight and one to open it up or even become the regular season best record in the, in the game. And everybody's looking around like there's no chance this team's winning the Super Bowl, And we know it. And a team like Cincinnati or a team like, you know, Green Bay, who was left for dead at week seven, come back and, and ends up because the depth, because a couple of bounces went their way. Is there something to that? Like, is, like for instance, are, are the Philadelphia Phillies the Bengals or are they the Rams? Did they pay for a one-year situation where this could work if everything went the right way? I mean, if I had to bet the amount of money that mattered to me, the Phillies are likely to miss the playoffs next year right. than they are to get back to the World Series. That is for sure. But that's just, you know, that's just generally sports. I do think you've hit on something, though, that is absolutely worth unpacking. That's the notion that um, in sports these days, regular season success does not equal postseason success. In fact, I think the, the gap between the two is widened. I mean, the Baltimore Ravens have been one of the most successful uh, regular season teams in the NFL for five years now. And they haven't sniffed a Super Bowl. Uh, you make a great point on the Dodgers, whose only championship came in the bubble. But they are historically good teams every single year. And every single year they fail in the playoffs. Now, what you could argue and what they would argue, because they have no other argument, is that it's just bad luck, right? Like, when you're dealing in small samples uh, over the course of time in sports, like, these are just things that happen. But I think there's also an example in the NBA of the Golden State Warriors, who were able to uh, become a dynasty, almost like sort of tear it down by accident and rebuild it back up because they found a formula that worked for them that created postseason success. That's a very difficult thing to find and to harness. It's why we never really see dynasties in sports anymore. Isn't that but Houston? I do think that, uh, Houston's the closest thing to it, I suppose, because yeah. they, have, they have the right formula. But again, they only won one championship. And in order to do it, they had to know what, what pitch was coming <laughs> next. So I, I'm actually very sympathetic to to Cashman and, and other executives to build great teams every year and their teams fail, I actually think a lot more quantitative analysis should be done of, of, of sort of like what triggers postseason success. And if you look at the Astros and the Phillies, it's not that complicated. It's like the ability to control the strike zone, uh, uh, an excellent strikeout differential, and the ability to control the home run, the, the home run ball, an excellent home run differential. Now, obviously, that's not everything, but it's probably like th those are the things that swing win probability the most in baseball. And ultimately, the Astros were able to, to out-homer the Yankees while at the same time, like, almost doubling them up when it came to balls in play. So that was a no contest. So are the Yankees in on one of these shortstops? Because, again, you know, just like it's, it's all over again from last offseason. There's four to five shortstops that could garner $30 million a year here. Are the big boys going to be in on these guys? Yeah, for sure. Um, now, to me, like, Carlos Correa is very clearly the number one shortstop mm -hmm. in the market this year. He's the youngest. He's going to stay at the position the longest. His profile in relation to other players uh, at his position uh, with that production is honestly putting him on a Hall of Fame track so long as he can stay healthy. To answer your question, I do think that the big market teams, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Giants, like all the normal big teams, the Phillies, candidly, maybe even the Cubs, they decide they want to start spending, will be in on some of these shortstops. To me, the order in which I would rank them if such a thing uh, were to exist um, would be Correa, then Turner, then Bogart, and then Swanson. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. But if you're going to be giving a nine-figure contract to a baseball player, the thing that I need to know, like the most important thing is, are you going to hit for the life of the contract? That's what matters. It's the most sustainable skill in baseball. It's the most important skill in baseball. It's the, it's the, it's the skill in baseball that translates um, year over year most predictably. And that's why you've seen so many uh, contracts fail. Like, think about the Jason Haywards of the world, right? The contracts that are built upon ancillary skills. Not important to me. Not at all. Uh, if you're giving these uh, big contracts out, it's how does the bat profile into the future? In the case of Carlos Correa, 
He just so happens to be a gold glove shortstop as well. I think the Yankees, if they lose Judge, will target Trey Turner as their number one option. I think they're going to um, – I mean, they've never really – I mean, obviously, since the prime of Derek Jeter, have never had a top-of-the-order bat quite like that. And we know very clearly that Brian Cashman uh, values defense and versatility and that kind of that kind of thing. And, and Turner obviously provides all of that. And I'm not sure that that fan base is going to accept Carlos Correa after all the booing of him they've done over the years. But my my expectation is that you'll see all the sort of normal teams in, in that sort of mix. The one uh, team that I could see jumping into the fray if they're getting really frisky would be the Baltimore. Haven't spent much historically. Maybe they would not be inclined to do so now. But there's an awful lot of money uh, that they packed into that stadium the last year with a $40 million payroll. And so perhaps this might be a way of uh, rewarding the fan base by bringing in a, a good young player to sort of provide that like John Lester type move, like the Cubs made it, you know, whatever it was, uh, seven years ago now, like sort of signaling to the fan base and to the rest of the roster, we're here now, even if you think we're at, you know, sort of a year ahead of schedule. I could see that being the kind of move that they make, but maybe that's just sort of a pipe dream given the history of Peter Angelo. No, I like that quite a bit. I just uh, finished a piece on the ALEs, and, and it's about extending a couple of those young kids now, getting that out of the way, and then at least two moves. I don't think it's an all-in situation with Baltimore yet, but there's there's got to be two moves, whether that's a trade or a free agent splash like that, and why not start at the shortstop position, right? Hey, Correa. What do you now in hindsight? What do we think about this kind of one-year player option deal that he did with Minnesota? Because it's obviously high value, right? He got thirty-five million for the, for his efforts. He gets a chance now to do it all over again, and now there's no qualifying offer attached to him. Is this kind of like a loophole that Boris has figured out to maximize a little cash for a guy who wasn't loving where the market was taking him in, a, in a, any particular offseason to see if he could kind of stretch this thing out for an extra year? I don't think so. Um, I think you might. I, I mean, I think you might see it happen on occasion. We saw Trevor Bauer play that game, right? So I think, I think if you find a player who is highly confident in himself, who has the backing of of Scott Boris to sort of coax him along, I can imagine it being an exception to the rule, but not, but certainly not the rule because very few players are in position to be turning down generational wealth, especially if it's the first big contract that they might sign. I mean, the in an honest moment, even Carlos Correa would tell you that. It, it was not his dream to spend a year of his life playing baseball in Minnesota, even if he earned $35 million a year to do it. I think last year's circumstances with the lockout were honestly probably the extenuating circumstances that propelled that to happening. Part of me wonders if like, like the, the Corey Seager and Marcus Semien contracts that happened right before the lockout were so weirdly timed and sort of peculiar. And maybe that was the spot that Carlos Correa would have wound up in had he been a little bit, I don't know, less patient. It's hard to say. I don't think it's going to become a thing. But I will tell you this, in listening to him talk on the CBS broadcast, he is definitely a next-level thinker, a, a person who's willing to bet on himself, yep. a person who understands the ins and outs of baseball in such a way. But for every you know player like like uh, Carlos Correa for whom it worked out, there's a player like Michael Conforto, whom Scott Boris cost, cost $100 million, right? So like you can provide any sort of number of examples across the spectrum for which betting on yourself worked and then you know betting on yourself did not. Okay, I'll get you out of here on this. It's an easy one. I don't get to talk to math nerds like you too much, so I, I want to at least get your take. And, and you have to answer this. You can't give me a softball, all right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Realistically, where are we with Otani in this contract? Because I've done all the homework, right? I've done as much research as possible on this. I've thrown every number at this. And if he's really this two-way player, is, is somebody really logistically going to offer him a, you know, a two-player contract, a $60 million contract per, per se? Or is that just an insane thing to do, even on a short-term deal? 
the answer to that question is yes. You're going to find an owner that is crazy enough to give him upwards of $15 million a year. Now, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see there being a case in which he doubles or resets the market to such an extent that it blows us away simply because there are just, there aren't any, there aren't um, a number of teams that are going to be even willing to consider it. Like, I think there's going to be a sort of a gentleman's agreement here that we're not going to totally reset the market over a sort of unicorn like player. At least that would be my expectation. In other words, I don't think, I don't think like it's going to be like, okay, $70 million a year to the highest bidder. Like it's, that's not how we expect it to work because I think almost everyone has to understand that this is not a sustainable thing. That's ultimately what it comes down to for me. Like that's what makes the Otani contract so challenging. Can I can that, I push back uh, just a little bit, man? Because for a while, please. for a while, it was the Mahomes situation, right? There was like an eighteen month, twenty month gap there where Mahomes was this freak athlete doing this thing at this position that really hadn't been done to to this degree, and he was now paid accordingly, right? And everybody else was coming way under that contractually speaking. But the NFLPA really loved that. They loved that there was this thing out there that was clearly better and, and freakish athlete, right? Everything about it was just different. But it, it, it was a ceiling that existed. I, don't you think Major League Baseball and the Players Association, they want this thing to exist? If he just signs for Max Scherzer's money, then how, then how is he more valuable than Max Scherzer in what he he's is. doing? His average annual value will start with a five and not a four, but I don't think it will start with a six. Okay. And that's because I just don't see, I just, I have a hard time seeing the, the here. Here's the one way that happens. The one way that happens is if there is some owner that is willing to not just pay for the offense, not just pay for the pitching, but to also pay for the international face of baseball. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I, that's, a, that's another blind spot of mine. Like you can obviously run the numbers. You can go to fan graphs. You can see what Shohei Otani has produced an actual value on the baseball field. And even if you think that's going to continue, which I obviously don't, but right. even if you think that's going to continue, it's one thing. But the, the notion of finding a player who is an international megastar, who is the only player of its kind in the history of baseball, or at least in the last 100 years, that's the one way you might see this market just totally explode and take off in such a way that's almost unpredictable. It's like an owner says like, here's a blank check, right? And we're going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. My best bet, based upon you know whatever information we do have, is that one way or another, Shohei Otani ends up on the Met, believe it or not. And I'll tell you why. Um, hear me out for just a second. So there's obviously a pre-existing relationship there with Billy Epler, having brought him over from Japan originally. There's also a humiliated owner who just watched his team get embarrassed by the San Diego Padres in front of his home fans. Um to where his manager just had to uh, resort to American Legion tactics in order to bother the opposing pitcher and a owner who we know has uh, a net worth for which a $250 million contract, or perhaps even more, if you're talking about five, six, seven years of $50 million per year, uh, it's a rounding error, right? So we know that Steve Cohen has an unimaginable amount of money, tweets like a fan, acts like a fan, is a fan. Like, that's the thing. Like, if, if, if Shohei Otani can find the owner, that is willing to act with emotion and that guy is willing to pay him 50 plus million dollars a year. I think that's, that's probably your ticket to ride there. The number of years is what I, is what I have no, like I, I want, like he's going to reset the market totally when it comes to AAV. I just don't know if you're going to get eight or 10 years for, for a guy who's a two way player. Like that's what I think is sort of hard to predict. I can't imagine there's gonna be a 10 year deal out there, but I mean, he's absolutely worth more than $50 million a year based upon what he's outputting right now. It's such a fat, I could have this conversation every single day. It's such a nerd situation. <laughs> hey, one no last doubt. thing, cause you're, you're living yep. inside this content stream world every freaking day, right? In eight, 10 hours of your life, you're producing, you're, mm -hmm. you're creating, you're, you're at least setting things up and teeing it up here. 
has it been a good year for Major League Baseball? It seems like there's been a hell of a lot more to talk about, obviously with Pujols and Judge and things like that. But just in general, I know the postseason's kind of been bland, a couple of sweeps and things like that. But it, it, has it been good inside your newsroom, Major League Baseball? Yes. Yes. Um, I would say that this year for baseball has been a net positive. Now, the, the things break in their favor. Sure. Obviously, after the, the lockout, um, it was a little bit rough. I mean, there was obviously riveting video of Andrew Miller and Matt Scherzer and Rob Manfred and Tony Clark walking up and down a parking lot every day, which is obviously <laughs> thrilling stuff. You made, um, you made but, it work, though, bud. But beyond that, like we got, like if you would ask me, like the ideal scenario, it would be Aaron Judge chases down Roger Maris and Albert Pujols chases down 700. Yeah. So we got that. All right. We also started to see like the, the strikeout rate decline a little bit in a, in a couple more balls in play here and there. Like that's, that's a good thing too. We're seeing postseason games not take quite as long. We're seeing pitch com work. We, it, it was announced that Major League Baseball's um, made some changes for next year as it relates to the shift and as it relates to pace of play. And the, like all, like these things just had to happen. Like I would say like on balance, the most pop, so here, from my experience, I've been at ESPN now for eight years. From my experience, the most popular radio topic that people like doing is how can we fix baseball, right? Yeah, wow. That is like the, the default thing. This year, we spent way more of our time talking about the good things about the sport right now. And so who knows? Maybe that's just anecdotal. Maybe that's just my experience and maybe it's just a passing fan. But to answer your question indirectly, uh, 2022 is a net positive for baseball. And I am steadfastly convinced that the rules changes that they have made for next season coming down the pike, while they might be a little bit challenging early in the season for some people, they will wind up making the game a lot better. I think a lot of that is Theo Epstein's doing. And I said it before and I'll say it again. Theo Epstein broke the curse of the Bambino the curse of the Billy Goat, and he might be the, the driving force behind all these initiatives that will sort of take baseball back to what it was supposed to be. That guy's the most influential executive in baseball since Branch Rickey, and if he can wind up pulling this thing off and, and sort of making that game faster again, making that game more exciting again, I don't exactly know how much input he has, but obviously he's, he's in those offices uh, in New York for Major League Baseball now. That guy has been a massive difference maker in the sport. Let's hope it works out. I can't top that. You're the best, man. Good luck to your fills. Thanks, boss. We're right October. <laughs> All right, man. We'll talk soon. All right, my thanks to Hembo. My thanks to Scott. Always good to have a couple of guys to talk to on these pods. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off that first year subscription. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast. 